Welcome to The Experts Speak, a service of the Florida Psychiatric Society. I'm Abby Strauss, and thank you for listening. The recent increase in access to marijuana, be it under the recreational or medical umbrella, raises many medical questions about its role, its safety, and its effectiveness. The assertions are very wide and often stem from the lay literature, so it is incumbent on medicine to look at what is known to seek serious research and bring this molecule to the treatment table according to its real properties. Devin Kanzagari is a physician and an associate professor at the Oregon Health and Science University. He recently wrote a paper reviewing this topic and in reference to chronic pain insofar as its effectiveness and its degree of harm. Please, sir, what did you find in your review? Sure. Thanks, Dr. Strauss, for having me. So we looked broadly at the literature on chronic pain and looked broadly at the literature about potential harms of cannabis as well. We looked at over 60 studies and in broad strokes, we found that overall there was limited evidence examining the impact of marijuana on pain. So for most chronic pain conditions, we just didn't have enough evidence one way or the other to draw strong conclusions and really need more research. There are two areas for which there might be promise, although we, we don't know the full story yet, that these two areas are neuropathic pain, people with pain from nerve damage, and patients who have multiple sclerosis who have muscle spasms associated with that condition. In those two situations, there's some evidence that some people may benefit from cannabis but there's a lot left to know. And some of the issues with that evidence includes the duration of study. For the most part, most of these studies lasted less than two weeks. Some studies were even just a matter of hours. And also the products used varied greatly and differ significantly from what's out there in dispensaries now. That would make it very difficult because you're not comparing the same medication from condition to condition. So you really have a very blurred vision about what's working and what's not working. Right. That's one of the challenges. So there's a lot of different aspects to this. So the populations can differ and the interventions can differ. So in this case, the preparations themselves can vary widely. The preparation that's been most commonly studied in the pain literature is nabiximols, which is actually licensed in other countries, not in the U.S. And it's an oromucosal spray with each spray delivering about two and a half milligrams each of a THC, which is tetrahydrocannabinol and CBD cannabidiol. In different studies looked at different numbers of sprays over time. But there was also studies that looked at smoked marijuana. Others looked at capsular forms with different concentrations of THC and CBD. And of course, the effects on pain and also the potential adverse events are going to differ depending on the relative concentrations of these. Good clinical study demands that a certain set of variables be consistent and predictable. From what you just said, it seems that a lot of these studies might be more suggestive than scientifically accurate of an effect of marijuana on pain. Yeah, I think the bigger issue is that it's hard to combine all the studies together with confidence, especially because many of them study different formulations. The second aspect, even if you can combine all the studies and can come up with some confidence about the effect of a given preparation, say nabiximols, applying that to current clinical practice is challenging because 
if one looks at what's available and what people are actually getting in dispensaries, it's quite different from those things that have been studied. So there's the issue of study-to-study variability, and then there's the second issue of applying the data to real life. Is this what you mean when in your paper you talk about something called the risk of bias? Can you explain a little bit, I guess, what the risk of bias is? Sure. So when we look at studies, we have a methodology for assessing the quality of that study. So not all studies, even if they're randomized controlled trials, not all randomized controlled trials are created equally. Some are better done than others, and the better done they are, the more confident one is in their conclusion. So we look at something called a a risk of bias to understand whether or not a study was well conducted. We look at things like the everything from the techniques they used for randomizing patients and assigning patients to one group to another to how they measured the outcome to how this information might apply to other populations. You talked about multiple sclerosis and certain types of neuropathic pain as being more responsive. In in medicine, we say it has a stronger signal. Is there something different that we know about multiple sclerosis and neuropathy that seems to make this a bit more reasonable treatment as opposed to something like cancer? It's a good question. So the short answer is I don't know because it's possible that these are the areas of potential promise. And again, I don't think we can draw strong conclusions even from those data simply because those are the areas that have been better studied. So they just have a lot more studies that have looked at those conditions. And unfortunately, there haven't been many studies in cancer patients. I think often many clinicians will treat chronic non-cancer pain a little bit differently from pain from, say, metastatic cancer, where the goals of care and your efforts at pain management are targeted a little bit differently. Neuropathic pain might be a little different from complex chronic pain where you have a lot of different contributing factors, biologic factors, psychologic factors, life factors that contribute to one's experience of chronic pain. In those situations, and this isn't just true of cannabis, it's true of many different potential treatments for chronic pain, it can be really hard to affect real change without taking a kind of multimodal approach to treatment. So it may be that neuropathic pain pathophysiologically is different and perhaps in some patients is more kind of narrowly biologically defined. But like I said, we really don't know if it's just a matter of the number of studies out there versus some biologic reason. One of the things that's been discussed is whether in some patients it is more the placebo effect or perhaps it is more a slight intoxication or inebriation. In the world of pain management, there is always a very large concern about placebo effect. Have these been looked at in the studies that you review? Does it come up as an issue? It's a good question, and it's an important one, and it's one of the reasons why we still want to see trials that compare patients who get an active treatment to a placebo treatment. Stories of effective treatments abound in chronic pain, and it's really hard to know how much of that is related to placebo effect versus a real effect because the placebo effect is real. And in many chronic pain studies in cannabis and in other treatments, if you look at both groups of patients, the placebo and the intervention group, often both groups improve over time. And then it's really a matter of does the intervention improve 
pain and quality of life and other things more than, than the placebo did. As you alluded to, cannabis is slightly unique in that, especially those formulations with higher THC content, patients will often experience the sensations of euphoria and so forth that people would associate with cannabis. And so blinding people to which group they're assigned to becomes difficult. Some of the studies actually tried to get at this by asking the participants if they could guess which group they had been assigned to. And perhaps not surprisingly, those that got the active treatment, the cannabis, were much more likely to correctly guess which group they were assigned to. You know, there are some issues there in terms of the blinding of the study, which does make it hard to answer your question how much of the positive effect is a real biologic effect versus an effect related to the the kind of euphoric effects of the cannabis or placebo effect, which I'll hasten to add, there's data out there that the placebo effect itself may have real biologic properties. So I don't want to suggest that a placebo effect is not real in some way or isn't experienced as a real reduction in pain, but it can be hard to distinguish the two. One of the ongoing problems, and it applies not just to chronic pain treatment, but to medicine in general, is that a lot of these conditions, well, I'm going to use the word chronic, we know from experience the effect of long-term use of the non-steroidals, Tylenol, aspirin, and even the narcotics. What do we know about the long-term use? use, the harm potential, so to speak, of long-term cannabis use for these types of chronic pains? Do we have any data? It's a great question. So we need to know a lot more and we need longer-term trials for sure. You mentioned opioids and it's only within this last year that we've actually conducted studies lasting a year or longer. So it's taken this long to kind of look at longer-term outcomes from opiate treatment for for chronic pain. And I think the same needs to be true for cannabis. What we can say about longer-term outcomes from cannabis comes from observational literature where you can look at large numbers of people over a long period of time. We've looked at that and looked at two types of potential harms. So we've divided them up into mental health harms and physical health harms. The bulk of the information and, you know, part of where some of the concern lies is in the mental health arena. So there's pretty good and pretty consistent information that cannabis appears to be associated with an increased risk of psychotic symptoms. Uh, both acutely. So there's actually studies where they will give some people high THC products and other people a control product. And those getting the the high THC products may experience acute psychotic symptoms. And then that's also been shown in observational studies in large numbers of patients. And then there's also some data to suggest that earlier cannabis use may be associated with earlier onset psychotic spectrum disorders. The other areas that are worth paying attention to and learning more about are in the area of mania. So there's some studies suggesting that there may be an increased risk of mania, both in people with bipolar disorder and those who don't have bipolar disorder. In the area of cognition, thinking ability, active regular cannabis use appears to be associated with at least small negative effects on cognition, though we don't know if there are lasting effects. So we don't really have good data on people who have used in the past and stopped. A note here is that I think we need to really pay attention to and learn more about is 
the effects of cannabis in the adolescent and young adult user where increasing understanding that the endocannabinoid system is involved in brain development in adolescents and younger adults. There's some data to suggest that cannabis initiation during adolescence was associated with neuropsychiatric decline in early adulthood. An area I think that's worth paying attention to and that we as clinicians and I think states need to kind of pay attention to as we learn more about this and have more data on people's use. The other area that's really important for people to know about and for us to pay attention to is the notion of cannabis use disorder and addiction related to cannabis use. So I think many have thought of cannabis as being a non-addictive substance. There's recent data to suggest that this is probably not the case. So there's a large survey study which looked at this question over time in the early 90s, the early 2000s, and then just a few years ago, and found that of those that have reported any cannabis use in the last year, about one in three or 30% had cannabis use disorder, meaning they continued using uh, cannabis despite it having some negative impact on their day-to-day life. And so I think that's a number that clinicians should be aware of that we need to pay attention to and, and kind of learn more about. And it's interesting to know that alongside that, the proportion of people who believe that there's few harms associated with cannabis has actually gone up. So I think people are less worried about the harms as we're starting to learn more about them. There was recently a report, and I think it came out of Colorado. I really need to look it up. But basically what it said is over the last decade or so, people who have used marijuana had a less frequency of opioid overdose. And I think it's important, and I would like to ask just your general comment comments on it, that the people who are misusing, and I may be overstating this statistically, but hopefully thematically correct, the people who are overdosing on these are not necessarily the people who are taking these medications for real chronic pain. And yet there was an association published that the use of marijuana looks like it's reducing the overdose rate. It confuses the boundaries a lot. Your thoughts on that? I think the study you're referring to, and one that's gotten a lot of press, there was a study that looked at the association between medical cannabis laws in different state overdose mortality rates. Yes. And that study found that states that introduced medical cannabis laws had lower opioid overdose mortality rates. I think that's very interesting, and certainly we are all extremely interested in anything that can contribute to, you know, it's been a really devastating opioid crisis. However, we can't tell on that level whether it was the use of medical cannabis itself that contributed to lower opioid overdose mortality rates or if those states were also doing other things concurrent with institution of those laws that had nothing to do with cannabis that might have contributed to lower opioid death rates. So that we can't really tell from that kind of study. Other studies have looked at just patterns of use of opioid medications and cannabis. The question often comes up, and we're often wondering, well, is cannabis going to be one potential answer to opioid prescribing and chronic pain, i.e., can people kind of substitute cannabis for opioid, and maybe that will be less harmful over the long run? And we don't know the answer to that. The studies are out there so far, and we need to do more. It's not a straightforward answer that many studies 
studies actually suggest that those that are using cannabis in the setting of chronic pain are actually also using prescribed opioid, and in fact, that the kind of rate of cannabis use might be associated with higher doses of prescribed opioid, longer use, and opioid misuse in some cases. We need to look at that more closely. Which takes us somewhat full circle that when patients approach us and they're in chronic pain and they hear about medical marijuana, we've got to educate them about what we really know. Papers like yours, and I thank you for doing it. Of course, you had other people help you, so I should thank all of you. It helps put it in perspective. It is necessary to put it in, in a good medical perspective. Do you think that there is enough good research on the horizon going on? or And this is more your opinion than anything else. Or has this momentum towards just the legalization of medical marijuana taken away from the real research that we need? I don't think the momentum for legalization necessarily has to interfere with the need and ability to do more study. People are doing more studies. Part of the issue is that it's hard to study because it remains a controlled substance in the United States and there's a lot of restrictions related to that even in terms of studying it. So there's a lot of hoops to jump through for people to study it. A lot of the studies we looked at were actually done outside of the U.S., so many European studies. We certainly need more of those, and I think many of us hope that there is something promising here, but I don't think we're there yet to be able to say confidently we know enough about this to kind of recommend on a broad scale. I will say that something clinicians can do immediately is ask their patients about use. There is a recent interesting study actually in cancer population in Washington that suggested many were seeking out use of cannabis, but getting their information from friends and social media and the press, many of them wanted to talk to their physicians about it, but said that it had never come up in their clinic visits. So one thing we can do is make it a comfortable space to ask and talk about cannabis use in a non-judgmental way. We can't really counsel patients or talk about it if we don't even ask about use. We shouldn't be asking about it in the context of illicit drug use. So I still see many people just asking a question as we're all taught to do in med school, do you smoke, drink, or do any drugs? And cannabis is usually put into that category. We need to ask about it separately because it's not, in fact, an illicit substance in many states, depending on where you live, and people may not think of it as such. As you suggested, clinicians simply knowing what we know about the benefits and harms, and in many cases, the lack of evidence on both sides is useful for patients to hear. You know, the last thing is that we do have good evidence-based treatments for chronic pain that are effective and have a low likelihood of harm. Certainly, I think we should continue to put energy in towards recommending these and then even more importantly, ensuring that patients have access to these other modalities. And these include things like exercise, yoga, mindfulness training, acupuncture, cognitive behavioral therapy, and others that all have some good evidence to support effectiveness to which not all patients may currently have access, but uh, we should work harder to make sure they do. Completely agree. Devin Kansagari is a physician. As I said earlier, he wrote a paper on the connection between medical marijuana and chronic pain, sir. This has been very interesting and very important. It falls into the need for both the health care provider and the patient to be able to talk about this maturely with, with good, solid data as much as we have. Thank you very much for joining us, sir. I really do appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me.